Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. So today we're going to be returning to a topic that we discussed uh, previously a, a month or two ago. Uh, but where there has been some significant developments, and that's Brexit. Uh, So we had uh, had a discussion a while ago with John O'Sullivan, and at that time, uh, there was a lot of consternation, parliamentary maneuvering uh, between Boris Johnson and forces within the parliament and without the parliament who were not exactly thrilled with his Brexit plans. And since then, we have had a dissolution of the parliament and there was an election campaign and the election resulted in a big win for Johnson's conservative party. I I think they have a majority of 83, 84, something like that. So they got 360 plus seats. Uh, So it's a clear, clear majority with uh, some padding. And so to discuss that, we have with us uh, Sahil Handa, who is a he's currently a student at Harvard, uh, about to become a student at Cambridge. He's a British expat, uh, although you're there in, in London at the moment, so I don't know if expat works anymore for you. Uh, but uh, he's been a writer, written for numerous publications about British politics, including uh, National Review, uh, Foreign Affairs, I believe, other places. So, uh, Sahil, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for inviting me on. So uh, I just want to maybe set a little bit about the background, you know, just talk a little bit about the election campaign and the results of that first, and then we can go into what it means for the future and perhaps some of the personalities involved. There was a period not too long ago during the during the summer or perhaps a little bit earlier where things looked pretty bad for the Conservative Party in the UK. I think they, at one point they were fourth in fourth place in the national polling, uh, something like that. Yeah, they won 8% of the votes at the EU elections in May. So Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, they were obviously internally uh, riven by all sorts of divisions. And then even after Boris Johnson became prime minister, you know, if you were to just uh, look at some of the media coverage, it seemed like move it, you know, shifting from one disaster to another in terms of lost votes, uh, people abandoning the party, you know, switching, leaving the conservative party or getting kicked out or uh, other things. But uh, the end result of the whole thing was a a very strong electoral showing uh, and uh, success and a new uh, withdrawal agreement that he's negotiated with the EU which people have different opinions about. But so I guess, you know, how did this turnaround happen? <laughs> That's kind of the broad <laughs> question. Sure. So, I mean, the first thing to say is that a lot of people think that the Conservative Party is the longest um, longest serving party in the history of the entire world. Um, and that's because there's this great times here in the UK called Daniel Finkelstein. And he wrote a column this morning saying that the Tories' number one strength is that they never stand still. 
And so you look at basically they were in this situation where they had lost a bunch of their support to the Brexit party started by Nigel Farage, who basically launched this grassroots campaign to drum up anti-parliamentary sentiment with the fact that they had not delivered Brexit after three years. And there's no arguing with the fact that whether MPs wanted Brexit to take place or not, they had every means possible to put some form of Brexit deal through and both people on the kind of brexit extreme side of the spectrum and the people who never really wanted Brexit to happen in the first place and the Labour Party and a few people in the Tory party and the Lib Dems all basically stopped it at, at every turn. And so because of that, Nigel Farage was able to drum up this campaign and the Conservative Party knew that they had to respond to that or they faced electoral oblivion. Now, Boris Johnson, whatever you think of him, is someone who has always had an ability to appeal to people on very different sides of coalitions. So he famously became the London mayor, a two-term mayor, um, the first one in a while who was part of the Tory party because London is an extremely Labour city and that's something that's not really even changed at this election either. And so they turned to Boris, someone who they would never really have considered putting into power before because the MPs knew that he was kind of their ticket out. And what this whole thing has proved is that whether you credit it to Boris Johnson or you credit it just to the failures of the Labour Party and the failures of those who wanted to stop Brexit and the failures of Jeremy Corbyn, the fact is, is that now we're in a situation where Boris has basically built a coalition between northern working class Labour towns and more richer, uh, more wealthy constituencies in the south. And the Scottish National Party has um, kind of dominated in Scotland. Labour have been completely wiped out in Scotland. And then you have the whole Northern Ireland question as well, which adds another whole layer of complication. But in short, he's basically campaigned on three words, get Brexit done and launch public spending, moving kind of to to the centre on um, economic issues and kind of distancing himself from David Cameron and austerity and things like that in order to just convince Labour voters who are angry that Brexit has not been put through to basically vote for him and to not be concerned that they are betraying their families and their towns by voting for a so-called Tory. Let me ask a little bit about Corbyn. Because as I watched, uh, you know, the returns come in, and of course, the first thing that happens whenever you have uh, any election, particularly one that has a decisive result, is the losers start to look around for who to blame. And there seemed to be a big uh, distinction within uh, the left and then also in the general media uh, between the folks who said, the, the reason for the defeat was Corbyn, either, you know, him personally or because of his hardline socialist policies. And then there was also issues of uh, allegations of anti-Semitism, things like of that nature. The, the folks who were putting forth that tended to be figures who maybe didn't like Corbyn that much to begin with. Meanwhile, the, the folks who more friendly to Corbyn said, no, 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 the, the problem is not Corbyn. The problem was Brexit, right? The Labour Party was basically the only party that didn't have a clear 
pro or con position on Brexit. They had this kind of like weird, you know, we want Brexit, but we're going to renegotiate it and we might, we, we want a second referendum and, you know, so on and so forth. Part of the reason why they did that is because their voting base is it was itself pretty split uh, between folks who wanted to leave and, and wanted to remain. So they said, well, you know, that Corbyn was just put into a impossible position because of that. So obviously, you know, they could they could both be serious problems. Uh, but what is what is your sense of that? And you know, was this was this a was Labor's poor performance? I think it was the the worst performance that the Labor Party did since 1935, something like that. Yeah. Was that about Brexit? Was that about Corbyn? Uh, was it both? Uh, was it something else? What, what's your take on that? I think it's definitely both. And I think people set this up as a kind of binary without understanding the fact that both kind of hint at the same underlying fact, which is that Labour, because of electing Corbyn in it, as its leader and because of the position it took on Brexit, effectively stopped themselves from building a coalition across the country. And so take, for example, Corbyn, the concerns specific to him are mainly on questions of national security. So he has a long background, basically, standing up for every side that's been against the UK in terms of foreign policy. And this really came to a head with the whole um, scandal with regards to Russia in the past. I think it was 2017 when you had the Russia scandal in the UK, um, where two British citizens were poisoned by Russian spies and in the House of Commons Corbyn refused to take a kind of strong anti-Russian stance and that's something that's taken place in between the 22nd 2017 election and the 2019 election the other big fact being just that people didn't really think that Corbyn had a chance of becoming prime minister in 2017 so I'm not really convinced that people loved Corbyn back then it's just the fact that now he's actually got a shot at the power so definitely Corbyn is a massive issue also because you've never had a situation where so many MPs in the Labour Party were scared to call a general election because they didn't want their own leading figure to become the Prime Minister. So what Labour basically did is they moved from kind of accepting the referendum result in order to kind of attempt to get into power themselves to attempting to use an election in order to stop Brexit. And the idea of pivoting to a second referendum instead of just campaigning to stay in was never going to convince Brexit voters. So you basically, Labour were caught in this trap where a good part of their base supported the in-vote um, and a large part of their base in the working class towns um, supported out. And so that was a difficult situation. But either way, the Labour Party w- would have lost a substantial number of votes. But there was a way of doing it that took a stance either way, and then stuck to that stance, which they could not do because their leading figure in J- Jeremy Corbyn was fundamentally at odds with most of his team throughout the process. So a large part of his cabinet comes from London, just like here in the metropolitan areas. And so he couldn't really convincingly put across a kind of Brexit um, argument when his proposed so-called people's vote or second vote was basically a very, very soft Brexit against staying in. And that was in no way going to attract leave voters to the cause. So these things are definitely issues that cut across each other and that kind of 
dynamics are extremely fascinating but the fact is is that if you're a divided party one on brexit and two in regards to you're not backing your your signature person in the party then you can't win and the conservatives whether you agree with the party that they become or not have definitely become a party that is in support of a single direction and that is the main thing in this election is that i think Corbyn might be someone who people think of as a good man. Boris Johnson might be someone who people think of as a person who tells a lie after lie after lie. But what Boris Johnson doesn't do is he doesn't lie about the nature of politics. He doesn't lie that sacrifices has to have to be made. He doesn't lie that he's gonna upset some people. Corbyn, he seemed to be he seemed to not want to take a stand himself, and he seemed to think that he could run the campaign on the basis of what he thought was important and not what the voters across the country thought was important and that just leads people to think that you don't know what it means to hold power because that's not how power works power works in terms of what you do in office not in terms of what you want the country to 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 do yeah and i would i would say just as a as a important note of background for some of our american listeners that traditionally one of the differences between the uk system and the american system is that the leaders of the party in the uk traditionally were chosen by the other mps the members of parliament not by some sort of broad primary vote system that of course changed in recent years uh impression is it does not seem to have been a positive development, just if you look at the results uh, of some of the things. But Corbyn in particular, it, I mean, it's quite clear that he would not have been elected the leader of the Labour Party if it had just been up to the MPs. It, you know, the the base of Labour voters, at least back when he was chosen, were for him. But he has always had a very antagonistic relationship with the other elected members of the party, uh, which not necessarily a recipe for electoral success. Yeah, I mean, it kind of it is a perfect parallel to the Brexit issue. You have a, a situation where a democratic mandate has produced one answer and the MPs in charge want a different answer. And that means that you have to find some way of basically p- picking one or the other. And that tension is, I think, I think one that is worth understanding for poor across liberal democracies, because we're going to have, and I think we're going to continue to experience more and more of a tension between representative politics and just direct democracy. And I think this is something, you know, that you can really get into why that's taking place, why technology is ailing that, why different things are contributing to that. But at the moment, our institutions can't deal exactly well with more direct democracy, granting, giving people more power to pick who the leader of the party is or giving people power to pick um, where a country goes on such a substantial question. So it is, it it kind of cuts across in a lot of different ways, but you're completely right. Labour members, even those who didn't, it wasn't as though Corbyn only became the Labour leader because a bunch of people entered the Labour Party. A bunch of people did and they voted for him, but he was always going to win if you just left it up to the membership anyway. 
Um, what wasn't going to take place is, as you rightly say, MPs. There was one MP the day that Jeremy Corbyn submitted his request to become the Labour leader, or he had to get a certain number of votes from MPs. I think it was something like 21 votes to be on the ballot paper. And he was one MP short. And if this one MP, I can't remember her name, but she an hour before decided to give him the vote. The sheer fact is that the MPs were in a completely different place from their base. And that means that for a party, you can't go on in that way. You can't. So you, you, they were always going to come up against this fact. And the Tory party are very good. At, they hate each other. Look at Michael Gove and Boris Johnson. They're now like best buds. They're in the same cabinet. They are campaigning on the same things. They, at one point, you know, Gove stabbed Boris Johnson completely in the back to become the Conservative leader. He made all sorts of jokes about him. The Conservatives are very good at manipulating each other. But when the time comes, they all get in line behind the candidate or, as you saw, they're kicked out of the party. The Labour Party are just constantly bickering and don't ever confront at this moment or don't always confront and have not confronted yet the tough choices that they have to answer about what party do they want to be I mean take for example and I know this is a long answer but take for example the question of Scotland Labour in 2015 basically completely lost Scotland because of what took place with the independence vote for Scotland and since then they have been nowhere in that country and the Scottish National Party have basically dominated with some minor ex exceptions. And there is no path for Labour to become a majority party in Westminster if they don't have seats in Scotland. But there seems to be no answer there. And so you've got these things where the Labour Party has to answer some really, it has to really think hard about, does it want to be a, a party of the union? Does it want to be a party of working class votes? Does it want to be a party of the metropolitan cities and young people? And does it want to be a party of kind of diversity? Because if at the moment the Labour Party is three different parties and some of it's base, some of it's MPs and some of it's the people that vote for it. And it doesn't seem to be able to answer those things, and it's now going to have to. Just a moment ago, you mentioned, uh, you talked about some of these similar uh, trends are happening across liberal democracies. And I know as soon as this election happened here in the United States, there was a lot of commentary uh, immediately trying to uh, draw an analogy between uh, this election and the upcoming U.S. election with Donald Trump. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Is there is there much of a uh, an, an analogy there or are some of these other uh, more detailed, deeper in the weeds, um, domestic issues? really distinct from you know what we are you know facing here in the 2020 election in the United States so I think they're definitely awesome but I think they're not the ones that all people are pointing out so for example the first one people said was don't elect Bernie that that was kind of the big the big thought because Bernie has moved too far to the left on economics same thing with Elizabeth Warren they basically the message was don't move too far left I think that's a right statement. I think that's a fair statement, but not for the reasons people are saying. So Bernie is not the same as Corbyn at all, because Corbyn's main source of, of the kind of unpopularity is the fact that his foreign policy record and national security record is deeply problematic. He's associated himself with the IRA at certain points 
in the past and other terrorist organizations whether he's he has sympathies or not at least that's the perception in the public whereas bernie sanders doesn't have that perception it's more perception of oh he's too far left and so when you think about um what the what the democrats can take away is really looking at this question of brexit and i know that seems like a question that's very particular to one country but i would argue that by the end of it and by this stage brexit has far more than brexit become a source of just a kind of culture war between um a kind of i don't like to use the word social conservatism to describe people that are that are anti kind of identity politics and anti um uh you know you have all kinds of words that people use for it now but basically the idea that you could have which the labor party did have an open borders kind of uh hint that they were open to completely unlimited immigration it's very difficult to reconcile that with a left wing economic agenda which means increased welfare increased public spending a four day work week which is what corbin was kind of hinting at for some point in the future so what i think it means is that the democrats if they're going to take any lessons from this it's not to say don't pursue medicare for all that's a kind of a separate policy issue that you can debate how it goes with the public but it is to say that if you basically have a collection of policies that might be um popular on their own one by one if they add up to a complete mess with a leader who um people across the country simply don't think is able to put things through government then you're going to get nowhere so you can give out all the things you want you can say we're going to go free tuition you can say all of these things but if they add up to something that doesn't quite make sense and looks like you're just giving people different things that they want then you're in real real dangerous territory and if you add that on top of this this kind of playing into the whole idea of okay we know better than the people who voted for Brexit the same thing goes for the states which is we know better than the people who voted for Donald Trump i don't think many democratic candidates speak in that way but sometimes they they sympathize or they show sympathy with those who tend to spur that kind of um that kind of thing and i think that's really really dangerous so i think there's less to take away on an economic front but there's a lot to, to take away in terms of overall questions of leadership and culture and immigration let me ask you wrote an article back in august about an interesting mm-hmm. figure involved in the whole Brexit debate which is Dominic Cummings mm-hmm. and your article was about Cummings as a representative of kind of a perspective that is anti-populist but pro-Brexit to be distinguished from mm-hmm. the popular perception of Brexit as being all about populism so maybe tell us a little bit who is Dominic Cummings and what is his perspective and and his vision for Britain leaving the EU and how that would fit in with a more cosmopolitan outlook. Yeah, so I think I wouldn't define Dominic Cummings as a cosmopolitan, but I would say that he's I see him as a kind of um a technocratic technologist. So to put him in to put him in context, he's the guy that basically ran the vote leave campaign. He's responsible for the main 
campaign slogan, so the take back control and the get Brexit done. He's someone who's very, very interesting just as a thinker and as a person. I'm not convinced that um, he holds all the, the answers to Westminster's issues, but he basically combines um, thinking a kind of Renaissance type ancient Greek philosophy um, mode of thinking. He's into war strategy and things like this with an admiration for Bismarck, for physicists like David Deutsch and Gelman and people like this, with a kind of strong belief that experimentation with political institutions is necessary to really update politics for a new age. And so he basically looks at the EU and thinks of it as this extremely, extremely bureaucratic institution that is just simply ineffective at making policy and even more so has a complete democratic deficit. So the one thing with Dominic Cummings is he's very famous for launching a social media campaign through Brexit and one that's been quite controversial for kind of propagating certain facts that people thought were false and yet at the same time he's someone that strongly believes that most politicians and most journalists are way too much in their bubbles and they need to get out and speak to people on the ground and so he has a strong disdain for the Westminster elite and he worked with Michael Gove in the education department and really made some enemies but some people especially people who are kind of on the radical side of the conservative party really think what he did was fantastic and he also disdains the erg who are the kind of brexit extremists in the party and he also disdains nigel farage as well who, who he thinks is just toxic in terms of launching this kind of nativist sentiment and dominic cummings was brought in as boris johnson's chief advisor and he's someone who basically believes that strategy is more important than ideology, which is the key to really understanding this new government, is it might look as though it's ideological, but there's this fantastic essay by um, John Gray in The New Statesman that, took, uh, that he wrote while this whole campaign was taking place. And he wrote about how the Conservatives basically understand that politics, um, especially Dominic Cummings understands this, is all about strategy and how you win this kind of power so that you can put into practice the things that you want. And so he thinks that by implementing this Brexit vote, you basically put a temporary lid on the nativist, anti-immigrant um, sentiments that were kind of coming up in the UK because you basically say, look, the government has democratic control of migration um, and you are allowed to vote us out or vote us in based on what we do. And if they can convince all the people who voted them in on the basis of migration that they're going to be better off, even if migration numbers stay the same, then migration becomes less of a salient issue if voters think that they're the ones in control and there isn't a simply an open borders 
policy and more so that the government understands why people have concerns over unlimited amounts of migration. I think those are the things that Dominic Cummings has always understood. And he's someone that thinks, don't be scared of taking the same position as a so-called populist in order to end up beating them. And that's something which makes a lot of people on the left seem very squeamish. But it's something which some people think it won't work in the long term, but it's definitely something that seems to be working at the moment um, for him. And it depends on whether he's just let the lid off of something that could go could go f- far worse that that we'll have to wait and see for. I wanted to ask about another issue which has come up in the wake of the election. John O'Sullivan, who I mentioned we had discussed previously, the day after the election had an article where he said that the election would mean the breakup of the United Kingdom because Hmm. in Scotland, as you noted, there was a very strong showing for the Scottish National Party, which has this has been more or less true for the last several elections. It seems like they are the dominant party in Scotland. They they want their own second referendum on independence. And then also in Ireland, there have been various, uh, I, I mean, I, I guess some of it is the Nationalist parties did a, a bit better in this election than previously, although not overwhelmingly so. But there have been various, po- you know, Northern Ireland, the border issue has been a sticking point in negotiations for leaving the European Union. And so there are people who are saying, well, this is inevitably going to begin the process of Northern Ireland being leaving the United Kingdom and, and joining the Republic of Ireland down south. So in the short term, of course, it's not clear what the mechanism for any of this would be because Boris Johnson does not seem like he is very predisposed to go forward with any plans either for a second referendum in Scotland or for anything that would give up Northern Ireland. But what do you make of that? How does the election result and the process of Brexit, what does it portend for the continuation of the United Kingdom and specifically in Scotland and, and in Northern Ireland? So I think these are, it's very difficult to say, and I think they're very different. So for the Scotland case, what this election does is it makes the case for another Scottish vote, a Scottish referendum, um, far, far better because and far, far easier for the Scottish National Party because they've expanded their vote to, I think, 48 seats after the 54 in Scotland. Um, and that means that they do have a kind of mandate because Brexit has been implemented by January, because of that, they have the substantial grounds to basically say, look, we had the vote in 2014 and now the circumstances have been have been made completely different. And so we want to hold another vote. But what it also does is it basically makes the case for Scottish independence very, very difficult because Scotland has an extreme budget deficit. And it's going to have to effectively pick, depending on how things go with the Brexit deal, um, between being part of the EU single market and being part of the 
UK to single market if it was to leave the UK. And that would be a decision that it was kind of not part of the debate last time around because they said, oh, well, we'll all be part of the same single market, so it won't be an issue. But now they'd have to deal with questions like the currency question um, and all of these things which make the case for Scotland going independent extremely, extremely difficult. And it it's an open question whether the EU would even allow Scotland in with the kind of budget deficit that it does have right now. Um, and so what that means is for the Scotland c- case, you're right, the Bush Johnson doesn't need to give a vote at this moment because of the size of his majority. But if there is a Scottish majority in the Scottish Parliament for having another vote, I wouldn't be so surprised if at some point late in the term or in the next five to six years, there wasn't a vote. And then that would hold all kinds of questions. But I think that that's one that it's worth thinking about because it's very difficult for the English well, what is effectively in some ways an English parliament to say no to the democratic mandate of a Scottish parliament. Um, and that it goes for whatever the kind of situation is in Westminster with regards to MPs. The Northern Ireland one is is far more dependent on how this trade deal looks when Boris Johnson goes off to kind of negotiate a, a deal with Brussels in terms of uh, goods and services, because he has effectively put a border down the Irish Sea, which means that as part of this deal, Northern Ireland stays as part of the UK, but it is effectively still in the EU single market. Now, if Boris Johnson goes for a deal which really separates the UK's economy from the EU, then you could see Northern Ireland basically that nationalist sentiment within Northern Ireland to to slowly increase and and for the first time you have you have in this vote you had more MPs who are in support of Ireland becoming the single country than those who are um, who are unionists and that's the first time that's ever been the case I think it was like nine MPs to eight and so that's another one where you really the the kind of contingencies of these four countries being part of one is something which is going to be a real part of the debate in the next five years and just because Boris Johnson has a commanding vote his vote is mainly concentrated in England Um, and that means that he has to deal with these things and you're right that I don't think that these issues are simply not going to be spoken about because there's a lot there that could mean that the union is under some kind of threat. Okay, our guest today has been Sahil Honda. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.